It's Wednesday, May 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. States around the country are beginning to get their army of coronavirus detectives ready to work. In California specifically, the state has teamed up with two universities to train more than 3,000 employees per week to become contact tracers. A robust system of contact tracing will be crucial for states to manage the spread of the virus as they reopen, and one estimate says that the country needs 30 contact tracers for every 100,000 people. Rachel Becker, reporter at Cal Matters, joins us for more. Next, the current lockdown has turned the nation's highways into speedways. With less cars on the road, people are driving faster than ever, leading to increases of tickets issued for people driving over 100 miles per hour. In some areas, officials are even closing some streets to allow for residents to move more freely. Jim Carlton, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for the open roads. Finally, murder hornets are a thing, but they're most likely not coming for you. The Asian giant hornet looks fearsome and can grow to nearly two inches with a stinger a quarter of an inch long. But while these hornets can pack a venomous punch, they mostly target honeybees and have only been spotted in Washington state last December. Sarah Kylie Watson, editorial assistant at Popular Science, joins us for what to know about murder hornets. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. A virtual academy for a recruitment effort and training effort for new tracers. These are simply disease detectives. Joining us now is Rachel Becker, reporter at Cal Matters. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about the army of coronavirus detectives needed to reopen states. We're going to talk about California specifically, but really this is something that's going to be happening across the country. States need to get a robust system of contact tracing in order to help limit the spread of coronavirus once things start getting back open and once economies start moving again. So, Rachel, tell us a little bit about the plan that California is going through because they're using the University of California, Los Angeles and the University of California, San Francisco to help train a bunch of workers. Tell us about it. So California has been doing contact tracing already at the local level. So the 61 city and county public health departments have been conducting contact tracing for forever. It's a, it's a cornerstone of public health for tuberculosis, for STIs, sexually transmitted infections, and for the novel coronavirus. But as the coronavirus keeps spreading, it's really taxed their existing staff. Some have managed to lean on county employees to help with contact tracing. But yesterday, Governor Gavin Newsom announced that California will be kind of stepping up to help as well with what he called a training academy from the University of California, Los Angeles and the University of California, San Francisco. And this training academy will provide 12 hours of online instruction, eight hours of in-person instruction to redeployed state employees in large part to help with contact tracing. And the local health departments in the state can request help and then they'll be assigned contact tracers that are part of this new workforce. And we've talked about this before, contact tracing and kind of the attitude and the person needed to be able to do all this stuff. It is kind of a challenging job to call somebody cold calls a lot of times and then convince them, let's say if they're positive or they come in contact with somebody that's positive to stay home for two weeks. It, mm -hmm. it could be a pretty challenging job. It requires really a lot of people skills. I was talking to one 
Disease Control branch chief in Riverside County. And she said it can take multiple phone calls to really build enough trust to reconstruct someone's string of contacts. Sometimes people will call the public health department to verify that the phone call they received is in fact public health contact tracer and not a scam. And it can take multiple interviews to really have someone trust enough to disclose whom they might have encountered. That trust is so important because having people willing to talk about whom they might have exposed is really key to identifying the chain of viral transmission that could continue to spread without identifying, testing, and isolating folks who may have been exposed. So other public health folks I've talked to have really emphasized the need to ensure that there is wage replacement and paid sick leave. So people are willing to be tested and willing to name folks that they might have exposed without worrying that they're going to be out of work themselves or that they're going to put their friends, their families, and their coworkers out of work also. I'm reading that this new online training program that they're going to be working on is going to help standardize the contact tracing statewide, which is great. I think if a lot of people working off that same platform, it's going to just help. And then it's also going to sync up with the California's existing digital disease surveillance platform. So all this stuff to help everybody kind of streamline the whole thing. And I spoke with a local public health department official yesterday who hadn't yet seen the training program. Uh, the state, as far as I know, has not released any examples of what the training will look like. But the idea that this public health department officer was so excited about was that this means that this whole core of contact tracers will be trained the same way. And so you won't have differences in approaches across the state for those who are kind of pitching in at the local level. Everybody will have the same level of expertise. And then this data management platform, again, very little detail has been released from the state, but it's supposed to sync up with the existing disease surveillance system, CalReady. And so what I've heard, and again, we don't know this for sure yet, but what I've heard is that this can import information from CalReady. So it's kind of a seamless transition. So if you get a positive test result reported on CalReady, it should be able to sync up with this new contact tracing platform. I've also heard excitement about the fact that this contact tracing platform will be statewide, which means that it'll be easier to follow cases and contacts that cross county lines, which as we see the state opening back up will certainly occur more and more. Rachel Becker, reporter at Cal Matters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. So he goes from like nothing, like, you know, Sepulveda Boulevard in El Segundo, which I'm sure you know, usually is packed, and he'll go over and it's like nothing at all. It's like yeah. a ghost town. And then he'll go to finding somebody going 100 miles an hour down the 405. Joining us now is Jim Carlton, reporter for the Wall Street Journal based out of San Francisco. Thanks for joining us, Jim. Uh, good to be with you, Oscar. Wanted to talk about one of these side effects of what's going down with all these shutdowns because of the coronavirus pandemic. I'm sure a lot of people have noticed that the highways and roads have turned into these kind of speedways a lot of times. This might be changing now as some of the states are starting to reopen. I just know anecdotally, I live here in Los Angeles. There are moments where there is a little traffic and you're like, hey, isn't everybody supposed to be home? But you notice these moments when people are rolling down the road 100 miles an hour. You see it all over the place. And beyond that, even the traffic reporters here in big cities have to get pretty creative with how they cover the traffic because it's changed completely. Jim, tell us a little bit about it. It's just amazing. And in fact, uh, you mentioned traffic reporters right there 
in your neck of the woods, Rick Dicker, he's uh, with KTDV Fox 11, flies around in a Sky Fox helicopter. And uh, I talked to him, and he said that, so he goes from like nothing, like, you know, Sepulveda Boulevard in El Segundo, which I'm sure you know, usually it's packed, and he'll go over and it's like nothing at all. It's like yeah. a ghost town. And then he'll go to finding somebody going 100 miles an hour down the 405. And he actually has started a segment called Speeder of the Day, <laughs> and where he'll take Sky Fox and he'll like clock him uh, from his helicopter going like 100, 110. So you make the Speeder of the Day. So that, <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, so we just. Because the highways are wide open all across America. People are using them as speedways, just like you said. You know, I do this podcast for iHeartRadio, but I'm associated with a local radio station out here. And we had to talk to our traffic reporters and our people in the air as well when this was starting. How are we going to change our coverage? Because there is no traffic. So we were thinking of things like, well, if there's like a Costco that has a huge line, maybe they can do a flyover and just kind of do an eye in the sky report of that. We had to change our tactics because of the traffic was so different now. But Back to the road, California Highway Patrols, they said statewide during this time, they have had to issue over 2,500 citations for drivers going over 100 miles an hour. That's crazy. I was actually kind of surprised at that statistic when I talked to them. I'd seen that, uh, you know, I talked to a CHP officer up in uh, Vallejo, California. He said that they just got somebody for going 150 miles an hour. And I was kind of surprised. I mean, I guess intuitively it makes sense. But the thing is, Oscar, there's people speeding more. But the CHP has fewer people to catch. So I think actually your odds of getting a ticket are actually much higher now. Yeah, yeah <laughs> They're looking a, for you. you know? I mean, so. I, I just kind of anecdotally, again, I just see a lot of cops out. I think maybe they were always there. But now that since there's less cars, you notice them a little bit more. So you've got to be careful. The police enforcement is still out there. And I wanted to uh, move into San Francisco, back into your territory a little bit. It said that the fall in traffic there has been about 90 percent. LA is probably not much different, but yeah, San Francisco, like 90 percent, you know. <laughs> There's a lot that contributes to that, too. I think there's local officials are actually closing down roads so that things are more mm-hmm. accessible to people. In Oakland, I think they closed about 10% of their roads out there. That's a lot of roads, too. 74 miles, right. And what's happening because of that? The skateboarders, there's a lot of people walking around. Or they're kind of taking well, control it's, it's, of the streets. Uh, I mean, it's, it's actually pretty interesting when you talk about it because there's one place called the Great Highway. It's like our PCH. And it goes along the ocean. And normally there's a lot of traffic, but they close off two miles. And now it's like every day there's bicycles, skateboards. I saw a guy on a unicycle the other day. <laughs> uh, and there's some other streets all over San Francisco and Oakland. In Oakland, I saw on Twitter there was a woman who put on a dance party with her, a couple other parents, and like three little toddlers rocking out to this dance party in the middle of the street. So, I mean, I mean, kind of humans are reclaiming the streets. I mean, pedestrians, bicyclists, and it's going to be interesting to you know see how this goes going forward. So, how do officials and law enforcement respond to that when people are gathering like that? You know, uh, down over here in Southern California, we're having an issue where people are going out to local beaches a little too much. That's why the governor had to close down some beaches in Orange County. Is there any of that going on out there? Local enforcement having to get involved? Not to the same degree, but I mean, I think that for example, Ocean Beach is pretty well socially distanced and so it's not too bad but i mean it's more kind of like an admonishment it's not like what we see in other parts of the country like new york city i think uh you know social media is kind of filled with images of officers kind of strong arming uh, people that <laughs> weren't social distancing right but i mean i think you know this whole thing with the road so oscar is just amazing uh, the, another thing is just the animals the animals have, t- have retaken i mean there's like a gaggle of geese right. going down the <laughs> las vegas strip <laughs> In Grand Rapids, Michigan, they had a herd of deer that like, had taken over a road. You know, there's a guy kind of waiting patiently behind like, you know, 100 deer. 
And while some of that can be nice and cute and fun and all, I mean, there are some dangers to it. In Contra Costa County, you wrote about in your article, there was car racing sideshows where people are doing donuts and racing up and down the highway and officials are warning them, this is very dangerous, don't do this. In fact, I just noticed in my own neighborhood in San Francisco, I noticed like fresh tracks where people have been doing donuts. And I guess it's a dream. If you're a speed demon, now now's the time, man. Now's the time. <laughs> I interviewed somebody for this article. And so he was... Kurt Chason, he lives in Orangeville, California, which is near Sacramento. And he told me that he was in his F-150 Super Cab a few weeks ago, and he said he was going up to close to 100 miles an hour to go to an RV camping site. Normally, it's about a two-hour drive in traffic on the I-5, and this time it took him like under an hour. <laughs> Everybody's got to be careful. The roads are a little lighter right now, but still, you got to practice safety the way you would at any time of the year, regardless of circumstances. So we'll have to keep seeing how this develops. Jim Carlton, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. One of these big hornets carries more venom than a little honeybee or something that also can have a pretty ouch, you know, sting. But these guys, they aren't really going after humans. They are a predator to honeybees. Joining us now is Sarah Kylie Watson editorial assistant at Popular Science. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Wanted to talk about murder hornets. Coming back from the weekend, it was one of those stories that everybody was kind of talking about, saying, oh, great, we're going through this coronavirus pandemic, and now we have murder hornets to worry about. Actually, once you dig a little deeper into what's actually happening, it's not really something we have to worry about in our everyday lives. It is a concern especially to the honeybee population. But it's not something that's going to attack people walking around through the streets when they're taking their dog for a walk or going for a jog or something like that. So, Sarah, we wanted to talk about these murder hornets. Tell us what they actually are, and then we'll get into some other angles on it. These murder hornets are actually Asian giant hornets that come from places like Japan, and they are pretty big. That's one of the things that makes them so newsworthy is that they can be like two inches long, and they have a stinger that's about a quarter of an inch long. And they were spotted actually the end of last year, December 2019, at two spots in Washington State. So that's kind of where this all started. They definitely have that murder look. They have these big, huge faces. They got these orange and black stripes that make them look really scary. And they do have venom. They usually attack in groups and they can give somebody a pretty toxic dose of venom. I think they say it could be equivalent to that of a venomous snake, and a series of stings can be fatal. But in Japan, they maybe kill about 50 people in a year. And as you mentioned, this story kind of originates last year. And a lot of this news came from the New York Times, a piece that they wrote over the weekend. And the story is really about how we're rushing to stop them from basically making an establishment here, from basically establishing their presence in the United States. So it's not so much that they're all over the place. It was just a story about this happened last fall and we're kind of looking on mm -hmm. how to stop it. So tell us a little bit more about how they operate. These are, again, very large hornets. And the reason why they are so venomous is because of their size. So you got to think about it like one of these big hornets carries more venom than a little honeybee or something that also can have a pretty ouch you know, sting. But these guys, they aren't really going after humans. They are a predator to honeybees. And so what they do is when they spy a bee, 
colony. They mark it and then they go back and as a group kind of take over the colony, kill the honeybees and end up using their larvae to feed their own young. So obviously that's not good for honeybee populations, especially since they're not used to these types of hornets in the United States or in Washington. So they can wreak havoc on a honeybee colony, especially one that's not prepared for them. And even when they were spotted in Washington last year, there weren't that many that they found, right? So I think they found two separate spottings that were verified. And I think there might have been a couple that weren't verified or weren't ever confirmed. So it's not like they're everywhere. There's been a couple of spottings. And of course, that's still a concern because we're not used to them in this part of the world. But it's not like they're popping up everywhere in the United States or that they're quickly traveling to other parts. And one of the things that you wrote about in your article, too, is that honeybees could fight back, maybe not ours because they're not used to these huge Asian hornets being around so often. So they maybe haven't developed the mechanism to fight back. But some Asian bees do a thing called heat balling so that they can fight back on these guys. How does that work? The bees that have kind of co-evolved with them in Japan and other parts of Asia, what they do to fight back against these big hornets is they kind of ball up around them. And as a team, these honeybees kind of shiver their wings or their flight muscles, and that heats up where the hornet is. So that raises the temperature of inside that ball to over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Also, it kind of overwhelms the hornet with CO2, which simultaneously cooks and chokes the hornet. And the honeybees that we have here are not used to these massive hornets, so they don't have this mechanism, which makes them even more susceptible to being targeted. So going just back to how everybody was so worried about this, it's not really something that we have to worry about. This is a concern, obviously, for the honeybee population, and we don't want them to set roots in here. You mentioned in your article, too, that they most likely hitchhiked on a cargo ship from Asia to the Pacific, or sometimes people bring them here to cultivate them as a food source. We don't know officially how they got here, but it makes sense with an international economy that sometimes when you're shipping things all over the world that a couple of animals might hitchhike all over the place. They are known in some parts to be eaten, but again, we don't know for sure how they got here. So we don't know if someone brought them in to cultivate them, but it's probably more likely that they hitchhiked on some kind of shipping vessel. Yeah, and as I mentioned, coming back from the weekend, you're hearing stories. I guess there was a few people that have gotten stung by these, and they said it felt like red-hot thumbtacks being driven in your flesh. You get scared. You think something crazy is going to happen, especially in kind of these unprecedented crazy times that we're going through right now. But for the most part, nothing really to worry about. The murder hornets is just another good story primed for what we're going through right now. If you see a giant bee or a giant hornet just don't chase after it and let your local agricultural folks know. I'm glad you brought that up. That's an important thing to know. If you do see an extra large hornet, something like that, something that just doesn't look like it belongs where it is, contract your local agriculture department and then they can handle it from there. So very good tip right there. Sarah Kylie Watson, editorial assistant at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you again for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.